pray the Lord this morning. Uh, he has allowed us to come back and commune in his word and to hear what he would have us hear this day. For this has not been granted to all. This is a great privilege to come and hear what says the Lord. And I am thankful to the Lord that he was pleased to use me as his mouthpiece. Uh, that is not to say I'm an inspired preacher. Uh, I'm only as inspired as I am teaching from the text. Um, I'm, I'm thankful uh, for all who were able to make it this morning. Uh, the Lord intended for you to be here and to hear what he has given me. And today we are going to be talking about a doctrine uh, that has caused a lot of confusion in the church, and it needs teaching, real teaching. You can't just go past it and then assume that people know. You, you really have to purpose to teach these things if people are going to benefit uh, from, from the Bible, and even more, uh, it's an issue of salvation. Uh, you want to make sure that you know what the Bible actually says for you to know about any particular doctrine that pertains to God and to his work of salvation through Jesus Christ. I have a friend of mine in South Africa. I've been sending these messages that we've been recording to a number of people now, and I talked to her. She called me on Friday, and she says she is going through a painful process of unlearning, of unlearning a lot of things just from what we've been able to share so far, that that's not what they are being taught, and yet she's seeing it in the text. And she says, well, I don't even know what else I'm going to unlearn. <laughs> so I don't even trust what I'm hearing at my church at this time. And that only can happen by grace. I, I reminded her that if you are at this point in your life, it's the grace of God that has brought you because he will not lose any of his ship. And he will bring you to the truth by whatever means he, he will do that. Uh, so... With those remarks, let's just go before the Lord and uh, ask for his blessing for today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne again as your people. Your people who are weak and ignorant, who are sinful, who need you in all things, all the time. And as we come this morning, we come to learn about your work through Christ and through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, these doctrines are difficult doctrines to teach. And if you do not teach, Lord, we shall re forever remain in our ignorance. And Lord, we ask then that you would open the eyes 
spiritual eyes and the hearts and minds of your people, even myself, that I may say that which is true about what you have told us to teach. I ask, Lord, that this word will go forth and will reclaim all those that have been overtaken by a false understanding of some of this teaching. Our Lord, we praise you and we honor you for your goodness and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, in whose precious name we pray. Amen. John 1, 29 to 34. We cannot do justice to those verses by just one sermon because it's multi-layered. There are a lot of things there that if you care about the gospel, you cannot just zoom past them. You cannot just say, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and then that's the end of it, and move on to the next verse. You have to expand what the scriptural teaching is and understanding that we are supposed to have from what the Lord has recorded there for us. And we are also going to be hearing Apostle John telling us about the baptism that John the Baptist came with and the baptism that Jesus came with. And these are very important topics for us. Baptism as one of the ordinances that the Lord gave us is very, very important for us to understand. And it's not as simple as you may think. It's simple, but when it comes to the various interpretations that are out there, especially when it comes to the baptism with the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit, you start to have all kinds of understandings that have caused even new denominations to be formed just around an understanding of baptism. So it's very important for us to know what this means because even as we teach communion, these are the things that we are teaching. We are trying to connect these pieces because ultimately the baptism that we are talking about is the baptism of Christ. Baptism as it relates to the work of Christ himself on the cross and baptism as it relates to our union and identification with the work of Christ. So we are going to read John 1, 29 to 34. It reads, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And Job bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from, the, from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And for our title sermon, as you have guessed right, is baptism by the Holy Spirit. And this will be part one. This will be part one. So the issue that we are about to discuss is a very important one in our day because it affects our understanding of salvation and the biblical teaching of justification by faith alone, which is the heart of the gospel. And as I said, churches and denominations have been formed around the understanding or misunderstanding of the expression baptism in, with, and by the Holy Spirit, and filling by the Holy Spirit. And of course, as you may know, the battleground is the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapters 2, 8, 10, and 19. And we shall, of course, be looking at those in the teachings to come. But not only that, many people have stumbled and are stumbling and will stumble at Jesus and salvation and assurance because some other experiential condition other than faith has been attached to the gospel as a sign of salvation. A faulty understanding of the gospel and baptism has led to an undue emphasis of tongue speaking as a necessary component or as a true sign of one's salvation and has in the process eclipsed faith in importance when it comes to justification. So the question that has to be considered is, is tongue speaking a universal experience and condition for one to be admitted to the blessings of God in Christ? Is tongue speaking a universal experience for any who has professed faith in Christ? If it is a universal experience of every Christian whoever lived since Pentecost, then all Christians have to speak in tongues. Then all Christians have to speak in tongues. And if it is not a condition of salvation, and if it is not a sign of salvation, why is it being elevated as if that's the hallmark or the defining mark of Salvation in Christ. Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So what, what you see Apostle Paul saying is he is not giving that much value to tongue speaking with respect to one's condition of salvation. So one of the things that happens is there's not much teaching that is happening out there in the church world. People are getting to be more and more ignorant of the Bible. 
And because they're ignorant of the Bible, they are tending to elevate their own experiences, of which tongue speaking is one of them. And what you see is without a proper understanding of what we call systematic theology or even exegesis, it's very difficult to say, let's open the text and read and hear what the text is teaching about this subject matter. Whether it's justification or sanctification, whether it's faith, whether it's grace, whether it's the nature of God or the nature of Christ, we have to have an overall commentary of what the Bible says about these things. And it requires a careful reading of even the words that are being used. Even just a small word like for can make a whole world of difference in what is being said. Okay. So when we talk about exegesis, most of you are probably aware of what that means. But exegesis, it means just interpreting a text so as to draw out the meaning. Interpreting the text as to draw out the meaning as was intended by the writer. So we are looking at how the words were used, their meaning, and the context in which they were used. So in Pentecostal and charismatic circles, we have a lot of teaching on baptism by the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. And this is not a problem of the Pentecostals anymore because this teaching has already infiltrated even the traditional Reformed churches. It has infiltrated the Protestant churches, the Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, Lutheran churches. It also, not surprisingly, Roman Catholic Church. Because the theology is Arminian, so they are very related. So it would make sense that a God who is not sovereign, who needs help from us, a God who can be manipulated by us, can definitely give us a whole lot more than he is willing to give. Okay. So what you see with this teaching is there's going to be an underpinning of Arminianism. There's a lot of Arminian thinking and reading of the scriptures in the development of understanding of what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Okay. And also what you see in these denominations or churches, there's not much teaching on the doctrines of what the Bible says about man as dead in trespasses and sins. So there's not an appreciation of regeneration, being born again. What does that mean? There's not much understanding of the fall and the consequences of the fall and because of that, even the understanding of justification and sanctification are all faulty. It's all because of Arminianism and uh, not carefully reading what the scriptures say. So in many ways, what is happening with this development around the baptism with the Holy Spirit is that 
you see that even traditionally sovereign grace churches are starting to be involved in this. The issue then is not really at the end of the day baptism in with by the Holy Spirit. The issue is it's a back door for a false gospel to come in because what is happening is instead of faith being the hallmark of salvation in Christ, tongue speaking is being elevated to be the hallmark. So there's more than just faith now being involved. It's more, it's more than just faith now. It's about the tongue speaking. So essentially what that is doing is it's moving us away from the true gospel. That's the issue. We're moving away from the true gospel. So, they say experience, uh, the, the experience of speaking uh, in, in tongues after one has been baptized by the Holy Spirit is standard for anyone who is born again. Since it happened to those that were with Jesus who had already believed and yet were later baptized and received the Spirit, and that the receiving or baptism by the Holy Spirit should always, always be marked by speaking in tongues. And if you're not speaking in tongues, you have to be manipulated to speak in tongues. Sister Ella has gone through that. And some of you have gone through that. And I have experienced some of that. You have to be manipulated. But when you go and read what happened in the book of Acts, there wasn't anybody who asked the Lord that they may receive the Spirit. There's not one who manipulated the Lord to bring the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came from the Lord himself. So, one of the things that are connected with that is that those who teach these things believe that all the spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament are for our time and have to be sought for and used. So this is the progression. You have to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the interpretation of that is you have to speak in tongues. And not only that, all the other gifts that accompanied speaking in tongues are said to be of our time. Okay. But there are more issues than that. There are more issues that surround baptism. We have also the issue of infant baptism. We have the issue of infant baptism, or what is called pedo-baptism. As you can hear from that word pedo, from, uh, P, that's a Greek word, P-A-E-D-O, that's child. That's infant baptism. Or sprinkling of water on an infant who can't profess faith in Christ, which they also call christening. Which they also call christening. And this, of course, is not an invention of Pentecostal or charismatic, of the charismatic movement, because these did not show up until about 1900. The practice of water baptism of infants or sprinkling of the infants is a Roman Catholic invention. 
and it's been around for a while. Okay? And the flip side of the pedo baptism is what is called credo baptism or believer's baptism. And this is what is biblical and that is what we practice here. And this is where a believer who has confessed faith in Christ, a believer who has repented and confessed faith in Christ makes a public proclamation of their faith in Christ and they get baptized. Okay? And they make a personal confession and get baptized. So the issues here are many and complex and revolve around and will be resolved only by a true understanding of the gospel itself and the teaching, the biblical teaching of baptism and the understanding of the word baptism itself, which word comes, which is a Greek word uh, called baptizo. Baptizo is the Greek word from which we get our term baptism. And as you can see, baptism is a transliteration of the Greek word. To transliterate a word means to write the letters in the characters of another alphabet. So you don't really translate the word. You just transliterate the letters of that language and you write it in the equivalent letters of a different language. That's transliteration. So the word baptism was not translated but was transliterated. And if we were to translate it, it would read as immerse. It would read as immerse or dip. But there's another dimension to this teaching of baptism. And it adds to the complexity of dealing with and interpreting the work of the Holy Spirit in this thing. In Matthew 12, 32, this is what the Lord said. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. What was the problem when the Lord said that? The Jews were attributing the work of the Holy Spirit through the Lord to the works of the devil. They had said in Matthew 12, 24, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So as we try to gain understanding from this teaching, we have to be mindful of the things that we say. We only are going to go as far as the Lord will give us understanding from his word. The Bible does not define baptism by the Holy Spirit in the way that it has defined, say, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But we have been given a lot of material to work with that we may glean a proper biblical, scriptural understanding of what we are to make of this doctrine. Okay? 
And we also, like I said, we have to bring to bear all the other clearer teachings of God's work in salvation as we study this. So here we go. For us to really understand what baptism is and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we have to understand what baptism means in the context of its original usage. We have to understand what baptism is in its uh, original usage. And we also have to look to the other kinds of baptisms that are mentioned in the Bible to hear what was being communicated when that baptism was talked about. We have a number of baptisms in the Bible that are mentioned in the Bible, number one of which was the baptism of John, which was a water baptism. And this baptism was a preparatory or introductory baptism which was preparing the way for the unveiling of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. Then we have two baptisms that were administered or will be administered or are administered by Jesus himself, which are baptism with the Holy Spirit, which is Christian baptism, and baptism by fire. We hear this in Luke 3, verses 16 and 17. And baptism by fire is not for Christians. Baptism by fire is not for Christians. It's judgment. Baptism by fire is for judgment. And a lot of people, you hear them talk about, or associating the Holy Spirit with fire and say baptism of fire in the context of the Christian experience, that is not true. If you go and read Acts 2, it does not say tongues of fire. It says tongues as of fire, tongues like fire. They were shaped like a flame. It does not say tongues of fire. Tongues as of like you have a figure of speech. Fire here was used as a figure of speech. It wasn't saying that it's actually real fire. So when we come to Christ and his second baptism of fire, that is never used in the context of Christians. Christians are always baptized by the Holy Spirit. Fire is for judgment. Okay? Then we have the baptism of Jesus as God's judgment on him. The baptism of Jesus as God's judgment on him. Uh, in Luke 12, 10, he says, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. So that's the other baptism that the Lord had to experience himself, which this is the most important baptism. If this does not happen, then you cannot have your baptism. And then there's another baptism that is mentioned by Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 29. In this chapter, or in this section of the chapter, Apostle Paul was not endorsing baptism for the dead. It was baptism for the dead. 
he wasn't saying that Christians are to be baptized for their dead loved ones. What he was saying was, he was talking about the resurrection of Christ and he was arguing for the reality in their life of the resurrection of Christ and also the future reality of the resurrection of the dead. And he was using their own practice, which was obviously pagan. He was using their own practice to cement his point that, well, if you believe that you can be baptized for your own dead, then why don't you believe when I teach you that Christ is risen? So the Apostle Paul was not saying we are to be baptized for the dead, but that if anyone believes in the resurrection of the dead, then that proves his point that Christ is risen. And obviously the New Testament does not tell us to be baptized for the dead. Okay? We cannot be baptized for the dead. Because baptism by itself requires that the one being baptized make a profession of faith and they still have to be physically alive in both spirit and body. You can't be baptized for the dead. For the dead. You have to be physically alive for you to be baptized. And then there's another issue that is tied to baptism. It is the formula of baptism. Do you get baptized or do we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or just in the name of Jesus? Which one do you use? And is it okay if I use the one or the other? And as you know, denominations have been formed around just that. So if the Lord wills, we'll just take a brief moment to answer that. But back to our beginning point. Let's go back to John 1 verse 33, which is going to be the center of most of our teaching. It says, I did not know him, that is Christ, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What is the meaning of baptism or baptized? This is what the New Testament Greek lexicon says about the Greek word baptizo. It says, baptizo means to dip repeatedly, to immerse, or to emerge, sorry, to submerge, to submerge as of vessels sunk in water. You are immersing or dipping into some medium or substance. You are completely immersing something. It is to cleanse by dipping or submerging or to wash, to make clean with water. Uh, In the New Testament, it is used particularly of the ceremony of washing parts of the body or sacred containers. I think that's wrong. 
that would have been more appropriate for the Old Testament. Old Testament. Um, the ceremonial act of washing parts of the body or sacred containers. That would have been a practice in the Old Testament. Okay. Um, but in the New Testament, baptism was officially first instituted by John the Baptist and afterward by our Lord's command who adjusted its contents and nature and involved an immersion in water and not only that, also invoking the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist did not baptize with the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. At least that is not recorded for us. Okay? And it was performed as a sign of the removal of sin and was administered to those who, driven by their desire for salvation, sought admission to the benefits of the Messiah's kingdom. Okay? There's another word that was also used that's connected to baptizo, and it's called bapto. It's B-A-P-T-O. And this is how it was illustrated. I'm still getting this from the New Testament Greek lexicon. Uh, the clearest example that shows the meaning of baptizo is a text from the Greek poet and physician Nicander, who lived around 200 B.C. In this, he describes a recipe for making pickles and is helpful because it uses both words. Listen to this. Nikanda says that in order to make a pickle, the vegetable should first be dipped. That is, bapto. It should first be dipped into boiling water and then baptized, which is baptizo, in the vinegar solution. So it, it is first dipped into boiling water and then baptized in the vinegar solution. So both verbs concern the immersing of vegetables in a solution, but listen to this. This is starting to get good. But the first is temporary. The first dipping into the boiling water is temporary. The second, the act of baptizing the vegetable produces a permanent change. The pickles are kept in this solution of brine and vinegar. Brine is a solution of table salt in water. So, pickles are made from what? From cucumbers. So the first process is you just dip them temporarily in boiling water, but where do you keep them? Keep them in vinegar. Vinegar solution with brine. Listen to this. So when used in the New Testament, this word more often refers to our union and identification with Christ than to our water baptism. Listen to Romans 6.3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Okay. So Christ is saying a mere intellectual assent is not enough for salvation. Rather, you need a union with him and a real change like the vegetable has been changed to the pickle. Okay, listen to this. 
So what do we see? It is the medium that is used for baptism that makes the change. It is the medium that is used for baptism that makes the change. Water alone does not make pickles. Brine alone does not make pickles. It is vinegar together with brine that converts cucumbers to pickles. And in this solution, the pickles are preserved good for a long time. Okay? So the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a better medium and means of bringing a lasting and permanent change to the nature of the believer. 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and is anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And guarantee there is translated in different versions of the Bible as first installment or a pledge or down payment. And we have been given the Holy Spirit as a seal. And a seal can only be broken by the person for whom it is intended. We have been sealed by God for Christ. It's a permanent seal. So the Holy Spirit is a mark or seal of God on his elect, and this seal cannot be removed. It cannot be removed. So baptism, therefore, is not about the temporary signs that may be accompanied with it, but a deep spiritual union and identification with the person and work of Jesus Christ. So John says, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What is that saying? In the light of what we've been learning, this is going to be good. Remember what John has said of himself. John has said he is just a witness he is of a lower rank than Christ, and he is not Christ. He is not Elijah, although he didn't know that he was Elijah. He didn't know that he was in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he has said of himself that he is unworthy to untie the strap of Jesus' sandal. So he is saying, everything that I am and everything that I represent and do is inferior, and that is why... I baptize only with water. So water is an inferior medium of bestowing blessing because it was given to an inferior person to administer it. So he's saying, my baptism does not result in a permanent change to anybody. It only leads to the one who restores permanent change and blessing. But there's one who comes with a different and better medium of performing the same baptism. This one baptizes not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit here is another medium of baptism, and this is superior to water 
because he is God and the one who baptizes with him is also the son of God. That is what is being said. So, John is telling us that baptism with the Holy Spirit is not a function of a prophet like him. It's a function of the Messiah. Only the Messiah baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Only the Messiah baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is very, very, very important for us to know. Only Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit because that's the function of the Messiah. In Joel 2.23, we hear this. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you. The former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And in Isaiah 44, verse 3, we learn this. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. So what we need to understand is the Holy Spirit does not baptize anyone. The Holy Spirit does not baptize anyone. It's Christ who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Okay? So Christ is the one who baptizes in, with, by the Holy Spirit. So he will pour the water. And so the figure of pouring the water is a figure of pouring the Holy Spirit. And we're going to hear the same thing in John chapter 4. Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. Okay. And, and remember what he says. He gives, he has a different kind of water. He is the one who has the water. And the lady says to him, give me this water. So Christ is the one who has to give it. Okay. So let's learn more about John's baptism. And then we'll build it again so that we may understand the baptism of Christ. In Mark chapter 1 verse 4, it says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So John's baptism was that ceremony by which men, upon confessing their sins, were bound to a spiritual reformation or change. And because of that, they obtained the pardon of their past sins and became qualified for the benefits of the Messiah's kingdom, who was Jew, who was amongst them, who was Jew to come. Okay? So the kingdom is about to be set up. And we hear Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is among you. He is the kingdom of God. Okay? So the baptism of John was preparing people for the setting up for the arrival of the kingdom, who is Jesus Christ. But why was John's baptism inadequate? Why was John's baptism inadequate that one who had been baptized by him, they'd confessed their sins, needed to be rebaptized 
in the name of Jesus as happened in Acts 19. Why was John's baptism inadequate that those who had been baptized by him needed to be rebaptized? Because you hear some saying, we never heard of a thing as the Holy Spirit. Listen to this in Acts 19 verse 1 to 4. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Verse 3. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. See the into. Into what? Into what medium? Is the question of medium. Is it a water medium? Or is it the medium that the Messiah brings? Then Paul said, verse 4, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So back again to the question that I asked. If John baptized people and they repented, why then did they need to be rebaptized? Why? Listen to this. The law was from heaven and prepared us as a tutor, led us to Christ. The law was given to Moses and the law was given for the purpose of preparing us for the coming of Christ to lead us to him. The law could not serve because those who mediated over the law, the Levitical priesthood, were sinful men. Okay? So, if the law has to serve, it required one who is the son of God, who is sinless, to come and do it and perform it and fulfill it. And so was John's baptism. It was a baptism from heaven. Because John says, he who sent me. The baptism of John was from heaven. The law was from heaven. But listen to this. It was a baptism from heaven and was for preparation. But it needed one who was the son of God to give a baptism that resulted in a permanent change. In the sinner. Through what? Through regeneration. Repentance, faith, sanctification, and justification. So baptism with the Holy Spirit can only by, be done by one who is sinless. The baptism by the Holy Spirit can only be done by one who is sinless. It is the work of Christ. When we talk about salvation, this is what we are talking about is the giving of the Spirit of God to God's people. So, as I said, John's baptism was for preparing for the coming of a higher and better person who brings a higher and better baptism. Okay. In Luke one seventeen, this is what we are told. It is he who will go as a forerunner, that is John the Baptist, 
will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to do what? To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John is there to make a people who have a consciousness of the coming of the king, a consciousness of the coming of the Messiah. As it were, John would be a curtain raiser. When you have a big match, usually have some smaller teams come and entertain the people before the main match is played. It's just to keep people entertained as they expect, as they are in expectation of the bigger match. So that's exactly what John is doing. Okay. So John is of a lower rank. And so he uses a medium of a lower rank, a medium of lower quality. Water can only wash the external filth. Water is a medium that can only remove that which is external. But we know the problem. The problem is not whitewashing the sepulcher. The problem is not whitewashing the sepulcher. The problem is there are dead men's bones in the sepulcher. So you may, you may whitewash the sepulcher, but your pain cannot get to the dead bones. So what you need is a change, a reformation of the heart. That's what the issue is. So the medium of water can only remain external to you. What you need is a deeper medium that can go beyond the external and go to the source of the problem, which is your heart. Okay. So here's John, uh, a summary of John's baptism. It was a baptism of repentance for sinners that was commanded by God. As they confessed their sins and were being prepared to receive the Messiah. And it was also a baptism of Jesus for the initiation of his ministry. Remember, the Lord Jesus had to be baptized. And we are going to be learning why Jesus had to be baptized. And it was that um, righteousness may be fulfilled. Okay, according to Matthew 3, 15. So what we see about the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus. Both were baptisms that called to repentance. They are baptisms that called to repentance and forgiveness of sins. And we're going to read Luke 3, uh, verses 2 to 17. It's going to be long, but there's understanding there that we need to develop Listen to this. Luke chapter 3, verses 2 to 17, if you may go with me there. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, 
The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitude that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, we warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bear fruits worth of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Verse 12, Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone, or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now as the people were in expectation, and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Acts 2.37 Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? When, Apostle, when John the Baptist preached repentance and the coming of the Messiah, the people asked him, what shall we do? Apostle Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when he preached the Christ, the people were cut to their heart, and they asked him, what shall we do? And listen to what Apostle Peter told them. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. John's baptism called for repentance and forgiveness of sins. And do you see that every time that the true preaching of the word is brought to bear, the question is the same. What shall I do? What shall I do? Why? Because you realize there's something that needs to be done. There's something that needs to be done to get you right with God. But then, the answer is always repent and believe. What shall we do to do the works of God? Believe in him whom he sent. That's the work of God. That's what you have to do. But listen to this. John tells the Jews that it was not enough for them. Do not say that we have Abraham as our father. It was not enough for them to be descendants of Abraham. Your lineage, your race, whatever you are, wife, husband, 
that does not commend you before God. You need more than that. So John says, you need not your lineage from Abraham. Your problem is not that you come from the line of Abraham. Your problem is right here, you need to repent. And Apostle Peter comes with the same message, that you need to repent and receive forgiveness of sins uh, in the name of Christ. But there's more. The baptism of Jesus, which is the baptism that was administered by the apostles, had extra requirements in there. It required the use of a formula. And it also gave an additional benefit beyond remission of sins. There are two things there. The formula now requires, it's not just repent and turn away or believe. It says, in the name of Christ. Now, if you have to repent, you have to repent in the name of Christ. And also attached to that is the receiving of the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when you repent, when you believe in Christ, it comes as a single package. You receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? You do not wait for five years from now to receive the Holy Spirit. When you have repented, it doesn't say when you have become righteous. When you have repented, which means you have started to look at Christ, that turn, that change to look at Christ. For who he is as your Lord and Savior, that's the beginning of repentance. That's true repentance. Because it's hard to believe in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. So, why invoke the name of Jesus in this formula? Because he is the Messiah. And, and you see, the name of Jesus is associated with the giving of the Holy Spirit. The name of Jesus is associated, it goes hand in hand with the giving of the Holy Spirit. So the name of Jesus is there and is to be involved. Why? Because he is the one who baptizes or immerses you in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the one and only mediator of all the blessings and work of God that he bestows on anyone. Okay? But what is wrong then, if at all, with Jesus' earlier formula that he commanded in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19? This is what he says. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is what I think. There's nothing wrong if our theology of God and Jesus are straight. There's nothing wrong with baptizing someone in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's nothing wrong in baptizing someone in the name of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the mediator of the being of God. Jesus is the mediator of the being of God and he is also the mediator of God, of God and man. Okay? He is the one who comes in the middle. 
That's what we are saying when we say mediator. He is the one who comes in the middle. Even in the formula, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's in the middle. Jesus is always in the middle. Whether it's on the cross, he's always in the middle. Jesus is always in the middle. Okay. Death, life, he is in the middle. Salvation, judgment, he is always in the middle. And this was pictured many, many times in the Old Testament. Moses always would come and intercede for the children of Israel when the Lord was about to kill them. He would go between the people and God. And when he did that, judgment stopped. Right away. And when it stopped, it didn't stop because the people had been good. They stopped because of the one who went between them and God. So the judgment of God has stopped, not because you have been good, but because Christ has stood in between you and God. That's exactly what is happening. So even as we talk about assurance of salvation, this is very important because someone is saying, you have to speak in tongues. No, speaking in tongues is not what gets between you and God. It's Christ who gets between you and God. And when he is in there, of which he always intercedes for us, there's nothing that can, even if you can't speak any language, it is too well with your soul. So, what is true about Jesus is true about God. Jesus is not a lower being that if you say, I baptize in the name of Jesus, then you have left some things that are true about God in Jesus. No, because if you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. Whatever is the essence of God is completely and perfectly in Jesus. So you will never miss anything if you are baptized in the name of Jesus. So, we do not need to make a denomination over that formula. Okay? There's no need to make a denomination. I don't think you are dishonoring God or you are going to be less saved if you are saved in the name of Christ because he is the one who actually paid for your sins. He is the one who is giving the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, our understanding of the Godhead and how God works, we know the Holy Spirit is also given by the Father. So there's nothing wrong with baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All you're doing is you're just verbalizing it. So when you say Jesus, you're saying God. When you say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're saying God. Okay, For God is one. But what are we to understand? Salvation requires and demands repentance. A turning away from sin. And a turning away from yourself to the person of Christ as your only hope. That's what salvation requires. It comes as a complete package in Christ. Salvation is a complete package package when you open the package of salvation in it you are going to see regeneration you're going to see repentance you're going to see faith you're going to see justification you're going to see sanctification you're going to see glorification it's all in the same package 
It's all in the same package. So, repentance is a gift from God. 2 Timothy 2.25, X 11.18. He commands it, he gives it. The package demands that all believe, but he gives faith. He says, you must believe, yet he is the one who gives you the faith. He says, you must repent, and he gives you the power to repent. He forgives sin freely, not by works. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, 8-9. And he commands all to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But he gives the Holy Spirit. What God commands, he gives. That's what we are saying. And this is how it works. Okay? So the Holy Spirit is given automatically when one believes. The Holy Spirit is given automatically when one believes because you can't believe apart from the Holy Spirit. You can't believe. You see, we minimize faith a lot. We minimize faith, but Jesus, the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, if he had faith as small as the master said, you move mountains. And he actually meant that. And basically he was saying, you have no faith. <laughs> you have no faith. But faith is glorious. Because here we are being told to believe in heavenly realities that we have never beholden by our own eyes. Okay? But back to Luke 3, 16 to 17. Listen to this. We are connecting all this Holy Spirit teaching. I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. So look at this extra material for us. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What is that winnowing fan? And why is it being talked about in connection with baptism? Why? Why, why did he put it there? Why did he put it in the book of Revelation somewhere? And why is it important with respect to Jesus and his kind of baptism. The winnowing fan is for separation. The winnowing fan is for separation. And Jesus is he who separates the dead from the living. He separates the two thieves on the cross, as I said. Giving one life, the one who repented. Who repented and death to the chaff who did not repent. And the Holy Spirit is in operation even on the cross as Jesus is in operation. Okay? So the baptism by the Holy Spirit is what thoroughly cleans out those that belong to him. Do you hear what that said? He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. So it's the Holy Spirit who is a better medium of cleaning. He is better than Clorox. He is a better medium of cleaning. That's why he thoroughly cleans. You hear that? 
he thoroughly cleans out those that belong to him and gives them fruit that is worthy of repentance. You do not work out your fruit. Your fruit is given. Repentance is a gift. So the fruit of repentance is part of the package. It comes as a package. So the indwelling by the Holy Spirit is what distinguishes the wheat from the chaff. Okay. Do not think that you are going to be wheat by your doing. Here, the distinguishing factor is that it's Christ himself who gives the Holy Spirit. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit that he may distinguish the wheat from the chaff. But listen to this. Not only that, Jesus also has brought another kind of baptism. Together with the baptism with the Holy Spirit, he comes with another baptism. And that is a baptism of fire, which is his judgment on the chaff. The chaff is the lightweight material. Because when you have a winnowing fork, what you're doing is you have your grain in the fan and you're shaking it. And as the wind is blowing by, all the lightweight material is going out. So he says, he is going, this is agriculture language. I grew up doing this. Okay? So he is going to ban all the chaff because the chaff is not good for anything. You can't eat the chaff. You can't use the chaff for anything. So you ban it. So that's the other kind of baptism that Jesus brings. So Jesus brings salvation and judgment. He is the one who does it. It's not the devil who brings judgment. It's Jesus himself. Because Jesus says the Father has given him even judgment. Okay? The power to judge has been given to him. So we can't use fire. We can't use baptism of fire in the context of Christians. Christians are baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's the chaff that is baptized with fire. And the baptism here is used positively and negatively in that context. It's positive for the Christians. It's negative for those who are not Christians. They are being immersed in unquenchable fire. That's why, dipped in unquenchable fire. Uh, but Jesus said also that his going to the cross was a baptism. As I read in Luke twelve fifteen. Where he said, but I have a baptism be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. <clears throat> so this baptism of Jesus that he has to be baptized with on the cross is different from what he received from John the Baptist. It was a baptism of God's judgment, and it was always from the beginning pictured as a baptism. Now this is going to be glorious. I thought it was glorious. What are you about to hear? I thought it was glorious. Listen to this. Psalm 18.4. The pangs of death surrounded me. And the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. This is the psalmist David. But this is Christ. Christ was not ungodly. 
it was because of the sins, your sins and mine on him that he's talking about when he talks about ungodliness. Psalm 18.6. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. That's his resurrection. Psalm 42.7. Deep calls to too deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Psalm 69, 1-2. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. But even more remarkable is Jonah chapter 2, 3-6. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. What is that saying? Jesus, right from the Old Testament, pictured his death on the cross as a baptism of immersion into God's judgment. That is what all that flooding language is about. It's Someone picturing themselves deep into the depths of the seas, overtaken by God's judgment. So, he, Christ, did not picture his baptism on the cross as a sprinkling. He did not picture himself as a sprinkling, but a flood of many waters. And this is talking about the magnitude and depth of God's judgment on him. This really affected me as I was learning this. That water sprinkling cannot be the symbol of Christian baptism. Why? Because it dishonors what actually happened to the Lord? If the Lord uses the type and picture of being plunged into the depths of the waters and he is crying out for help because the waters have overwhelmed him, you can't say, I'm going to sprinkle you as a type of bringing you to Christ. That does not do that. It dishonors the work of the Lord on the cross. Is baptism into the water that honors what Christ did for you on the cross. Okay? Because you see there in the description, there's a lot of desperation. Christ is desperate. He really is desperate. Because this is not fun. Yes, he is the son of God, but he is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you are holy. Okay, he is forsaken of God. And that's what he's, he's talking about his baptism. This is the baptism that I have to go through. I have to go through this baptism. 
And this is why Jonah was given as a sign. He said to the Jews, no sign shall be given to this evil and adulterous generation, but the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the well of the beast, three days and three nights. So the going down of Jonah into the waters and into the belly of the beast was a type of the suffering of Christ on the cross and his death and resurrection, of course. Okay? So, true Christian baptism, from the practice of it, has to involve the full immersion of the believer into water, not sprinkling. Okay? You can't get sprinkling from the New Testament. Okay? Even if you were to use sprinkling, where sprinkling is used, the Greek word that is used for sprinkling is not used in the context of our baptism. It's not used in the context of our baptism. And I'm going to be expanding next week on the baptism elements, like exactly the movement, what really is happening as you are being dipped. Why do you have to be covered? Why do you have to be covered? Because your whole body needs to be saved. You will have to be covered by the water. You will have to be covered by the full judgment of God. You can't just be sprinkled on your face because you still have some parts of you that are not covered by the judgment of God. So the full immersion is saying you have been fully judged and you shall be fully resurrected. Okay. So we do not sprinkle babies here. We don't sprinkle babies and we baptize only believers. And we don't manipulate anybody to be baptized. When the Lord has spoken to them, we continue teaching the, the, the gospel. And when the Lord has spoken to them, they will come and ask. They know. If they can drive up to a drive through and ask for a sandwich, they can come and ask to be baptized. So, if Jesus was the one to bring a better baptism with the Holy Spirit, why was he baptized by John? If Jesus is the one who is bringing a better baptism, why was he baptized? Because remember the baptism of John. It was for calling sinners to repentance. Why does Jesus need to be baptized. He told us in Matthew 3.15, permit it to be so now, for thus, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness for who? Because Christ is already righteous. Why get baptized if John's baptism is for sinners and repentance? Christ is not a sinner and so he does not need to repent. The law stipulated that all male Israelites be circumcised. And any Gentiles or foreigners who were among them who wanted to worship the true God were to follow all the ordinances that the Lord had given. <coughs> okay, you have listened to this carefully. This is good. There was one ordinance for both the Israelite as there was for the foreigner. 
There was one ordinance to be observed. If it came to the Passover, whatever requirements of that ordinance had to be observed by either the native Israelite or the foreigner among them. There was none who was given an exemption to the rules and commandments surrounding whatever ordinance the Lord had given. Given uh, Here this, Numbers 9, 14. And if a stranger dwells among you and would keep the Lord's Passover, he must do so according to the right of the Passover and according to its ceremony. You shall have one ordinance, both for the stranger and the native of the land. Genesis seventeen twelve. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. Exodus 12, 9. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. Numbers 15, 11 to 16. Thus it shall be done for each ox or, or for each ram or for each of the male lambs or of the gods. Verse 12, according to the number that you prepare, you shall do for everyone according to their number. All who are native shall do these things in this manner, in presenting an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. If an alien sojourns with you, or one who may be among you throughout your generations, and he wishes to make an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so he shall do. Verse 15. As for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. A perpetual statute throughout your generations as you are, so shall the alien be before the Lord. There is to be one law and one ordinance for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. Jesus Christ is the alien who sojourns among you and he wishes to offer an offering before the Lord. So one law for him and for us is the same law. But listen to this. So Jesus has to be baptized as an alien among us and as our substitute and representative for both the elect among the Jews and the elect among the Gentiles that he may unite them under the law of God. If the Gentiles, the foreigners among Israel, could not be accepted without circumcision and washing, then they cannot be united to Christ, who is the Passover Lamb of God. So what we are being taught here, and it's very consistent right from the book of Genesis, is one law for all. And if Christ has to come and be joined to us as a human being, he has to fall under the law of God. And remember the baptism of John. He got it from God. God has told him that he has to baptize. So, listen to this. So, he gets baptized with a baptism for sinners that he may identify and unite all the sinners in himself. Okay? The baptism that Christ had from John was for identification with sinners. Christ is beginning his ministry in the place of sinners. Join them, both Jew and Gentile. 
But we have a precedent. We have a precedent. Listen to this. Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised. And then was circumcised as a pattern for both Jews and Gentiles. And this was God's arrangement for identification and, uni and unity with both Jews and Gentiles. Because remember that those who are of faith are the children of Abraham. So we have been united in Abraham even though we were not physically circumcised. Listen to this. So the, the justification of Abraham before his circumcision and then his circumcision later was a type of our own union and identification and justification in the person of Christ. Okay, listen to this. Romans 4. Romans 4, verses 9 to 12. Is this blessing then on the uncircumcised or on the... Sorry. Uh, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say... Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? You have to pay attention to that. While he was circumcised or uncircumcised. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe. You see, the unity of it. So that he may be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness, righteousness might be credited to them. So if Christ is not baptized, we cannot get in union with him. He will only be in union with his fellow Jews. That's a picture. This is just a picture. Because our ultimate union with Christ is in God's election of us in him. That's where our union. But all these things are there to teach us how we have been brought into Christ. Okay? Listen to this. And verse 12. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So Jesus was baptized for identification. He had no sins to pay for. He had no sins to repent from. So why get baptized? To fulfill all righteousness. What righteousness? To follow the law of God. One ordinance. He is the one who was preparing himself to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Amen. So he has to be baptized to bring us in union to him. Okay? That we may fulfill all righteousness. Okay. So this is what has happened with Christ. As we close. Christ is the son of God. He comes from heaven. He has clothed himself with humanity for identification. We know that from the book of Hebrews. Okay. We have a high priest who has been made just like us, and yet without sin. So Christ's incarnation is for identification with humanity, number one. Number two, he has to bab get baptized to 
identify now with his people. With his particular people, the ones he came to save. From both the Jews and the Gentiles. And then as he goes on the cross, that's another union. That's another union which Apostle Paul is going to develop for us in Romans chapter 6. That's another union which is now the type, the death of Christ, the burial, and the resurrection is a type of our union with him. So the baptism of Christ has to happen that we may be in union with him. And that union ultimately is through the giving of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who has been given as a seal of our righteousness. So baptism is immersion into water and is a symbol, it's a symbol of the identification and union with the baptism that has already happened. The baptism has already happened. When you come to faith, the baptism has already happened because it happened on the cross. So you do not get baptized to receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? The baptism has already uh, been done. So it's, for, it's a symbol for our ultimate identification with the baptism of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And baptism by the Holy Spirit is only a function of the Messiah. Very important. He alone baptizes people into himself through the Holy Spirit because this is the work of salvation. Baptism in, by, and with the Holy Spirit, although associated with tongues at the institution of the church at the day of Pentecost, is not the sign of salvation. It is not the sign of salvation. Faith in Christ is the hallmark. That's the defining mark of salvation in Christ Jesus. So all who are in Christ, whether they speak or spoke in tongues, are baptized by the Holy Spirit. Okay? And Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, if you believe in Christ, you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. That's all there is to it. But for purposes of just being able to navigate these things, we have to teach some more and go to the book of Acts, Acts go into the spiritual gifts. Because the, the, the book of Corinthians is what gives us the theology. It's going to give us the theology of the gifts, the bestower of the gifts. The book of Acts doesn't tell us much. It was telling us about the activity, the work of the Lord through the apostles. When you go to the book of Acts, Apostle Paul, sorry, of, of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Apostle Paul is now going to explain to us that, oh, guess what? The Holy Spirit is sovereign. <laughs> this is what he's doing. He has gifted people with different gifts, and not all speak in tongues. Okay, so we'll get to that next week. But with that, let's go before the Lord in prayer.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before the throne this morning. We thank you. We honor you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who has baptized all his people by the Holy Spirit. He has given us his spirit as a seal and down payment for a salvation that is to be fully consummated in glorification. And we know that all those who have been born again of the Spirit believe in Christ. We know from the Scriptures that not all men have been given the same other gift is more saved than the other. The work of salvation was on the cross. It's not in the gifts. The gifts come because of the cross. And we are here, Lord, because the work of salvation was fully accomplished on the cross. And faith is what is the defining mark from what we have been reading from your word. Those who believe, we have eternal life. Those that believe have eternal life. And those who don't believe, the wrath of God abides on them. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to bring us to where we are as Berean Sovereign Grace Church and to give us this opportunity to go into these very difficult doctrines. Lord, forgive us where we add and give us understanding. I pray and thank you. May you be with us as we go out. May you be with all who shall listen to this message and give them understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.